This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to helping you become a savvier marketing leader no matter your level. In each episode, we will dive into a relevant topic or challenge that marketing leaders are currently facing. We will also give you practical tools and applications that will help you put what you learn into practice today. And if you missed anything, don't worry. We put worksheets on our website that summarize the key points. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I'm Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today's another Marketing Smarts classic, how to successfully lead when you're not the leader with Scott Maltz, founder of Profound Performance. We wanted to bring this episode back because we are finding ourselves referring to it a lot with our middle management coaching clients. Specifically, the point we're referring to a lot is number three about being a teacher. This is a pivotal mindset shift for those who are struggling to gain advocacy and support from their colleagues. When you focus too much on your piece of the pie versus the pie as a whole, you will struggle to show up as a leader. Being a teacher resets the lens and demonstrates to others you get the bigger picture, which ultimately leads to that coveted advocacy and support. For more, continue listening to the episode. One of the statements we hear a lot from our coaching clients is, if I was a leader, I would be doing things so differently. (laughs) Of which April and I promptly reply, you know, you don't need to be the name the leader to be a leader. And this usually gets met with a lot of blank stares or prolonged moments of silence when we're on the phone. But once accepted, it can be very empowering. And what usually blows everyone's mind is when we tell them that it's generally the non-name leader who can actually have the most influence. Yeah, it's really so true. And the reason this is true is because as part of a team, you bring a unique perspective that nobody else in that room can bring. And so when you take that perspective and you cultivate it into expertise, you then have value that commands attention and then results in influence. And that influence is really the driver of leadership, again, whether you're named the leader, and I'm doing the quotes here in the room, or not. Right. And we're going to dive deep into how you do just that. And to help us with this, we have a very special guest, one of our very favorite people. You've heard us talk about him a lot since he used to be our business coach. And he's also a popular author and keynote speaker, Scott Mouse, founder of Profound Performance. Scott, hi, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. Hello, Marketing Smarts World. Hello, April. Hello, Ann. So cool to be here. <laughs> I'm uh, really psyched to be here to support the topic today. I believe so much in about how to lead when you're not the leader. It's the whole reason why I wrote my uh, my new book, Leading from the Middle, a playbook for managers to influence up, down, and across the organization, because I have so much heart for all of us poor bastards who are stuck in the middle and have to leave but don't <laughs> feel like they have the title lead leader. So yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, that's going to have some great perspective on what we're about ready to talk. So can't wait. All right. So let's jump into how to successfully lead when you're not the leader. The first thing is become a subject matter expert. And this can be on multiple different levels. But what must be true, no matter what level it's on, is you must bring value to the organization. So here are some examples. Maybe you're a topical expert, like you have an expert in a particular field, like science or math, English, marketing, engineering. These are usually in certain professions like researchers or scientists or professors or tech experts or social media experts. So you have a specific understanding and an innate knowledge of a specific topic that you can bring value to your organization. Or maybe you're a brand or industry expert. So, for example, I spent almost 10 years in fabric care when I was at P&G. I would say that I was a 
fabric care industry expert, but I was also a brand expert because I worked a lot on Tide. I worked about six or seven years on Tide. And within the broader category, you could say that my 20 years at P&G made me maybe a CPG expert, right? Because I had that full scope of experience there. And then even within that, I was a public relations expert because I was a very um, attuned to the communications world and worked very much within that. So your expertise can be in multiple different facets, or maybe you're a skill or a process expert. So for example, it could be woodworker, mechanic, maybe even magician or design thinking like my friend Holly or an athlete. These are physical or mental attributes that give you a specific skill that you can then teach or practice. A lot of times these people become manufacturing experts or coaches or trainers or consultants. Regardless, you need to figure out what do you want to be known for and why someone would call upon you. And that's really how you develop your subject matter expertise. And Scott, I know you have a lot to talk about on this one. Why don't you uh, share what your thoughts here are? Yeah, I just want to build on what you're saying, because for sure, not, you know, influences, it is leadership and building your subject matter expertise. Though, here's an extra bonus for all your listeners. Not only does building your subject matter expertise, not only does it lead to influence, it leads to opportunity as yeah, well, and I'll give you I'll give you a simple example. Um, you know, when I was in the corporate world, I started building expertise on leadership, and specifically the slice of how to convert leadership insight into inspiring talks that would help people be motivated to want to learn more about becoming a leader. And you know, I started developing my subject matter expertise and how to give powerful leadership talks and. I started giving them as a sidebar at work just for, you know, for fun. And it turned out, shocker here, at least I wasn't the worst person at doing it <laughs> in the company, which is a start. We save that for like people from legal or, you know, or, some other, or like finance. I, I don't know. Uh, and, it, and I started getting asked more and more often, hey, can you do, you know, another leadership talk for us? And then another, and that led to more talks. And then that led to, man, maybe I should write a book and delve into the expert level even more. And it ultimately created a huge opportunity for me to plan my exit from corporate one day because, because I had planned subject matter expertise. And now that's what I do for a living. I, I talk and I speak about leadership and write about it all over the world. And I'm not saying that you know developing subject matter expertise means that the only way you can then leverage it is to leave the company and go sell it. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it creates incredible opportunity for you within your own organization, right? Right. I'm sure you guys have seen that as well, April and Anne, when in your own days in corporate. Yeah, I think it's really true. And I think you're right in that it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go all on your own or, or exit or whatever. But I think as soon as you can carve something out for yourself that you want to become the subject matter expert around, the sooner you start to get recognition for it because you're building consistency and you're making the choice to focus in that area that is unique to you. So in the setup, we talked about, you know, you're you, you're bringing something unique to the table. When you figure out what that thing is that you have that passion for and that you feel like you have a unique perspective on, it's not like you can just snap your fingers and be like, okay, now this is what I'm going to talk about <laughs> right. all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But when you choose that as your thing, you start to cultivate it with intentionality and then people start to recognize you for it. And then it, to your point, Scott, starts to open up this broader path. I mean, you probably started it without thinking necessarily, I'm going to exit P&G at some point. And so therefore, I'm going to start this when I'm 20. 
That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> but when you identify the thing, it just it's kind of like then you're like, oh, well, next I could try this and next I could try this. And then a- after a period of time, people start to look to you versus you having to sell yourself on it. Yeah, very, very well said. It, 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 you, it becomes a magnet yes. for attention, yes. attraction, opportunity and influence. So I, I'm, I'm glad you guys opened with this topic today. Yeah, and I, I think those are all great points. And and just to you know put a a point on that, I think the ones that you guys really specified are even like more the softer areas, right? Yeah. Where it's not necessarily yeah. like something you go to school for, but it's something you innately understand. And a lot of times that can show up in a very opposite way. Like for example, one of the people that I'm coaching. Um, said that, and actually I'll probably tell the story later, is that um, they were like the no person, like, oh, you can't do that because such and such can happen. This can happen and that can happen. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, it's the no person. And I said, well, you know what? That's actually your superpower. Some You can look around corners. You can see around corners and you can see what's going to happen before it's going to happen. If you can flip it, then that becomes mm-hmm. your subject matter expertise as we're going to go to this person now because they are able to see around corners and they're productive and helping us figure out how to go do about it. So it can be one of those like softer elements. It doesn't necessarily need to be a trained element or a skilled element, but it's something that you innately can see that maybe people can't see as easily around you. Yeah, and even and the softer it is, sometimes the greater of a reputation you build for having that skill because it's unusual mm-hmm. in a corporate setting, right? Mm-hmm. So absolutely, yeah. that's absolutely yeah. true. Well, and you're putting yourself out there. Yeah, and all of you corporate <laughs> friends of mine. <laughs> I feel like when you do that in those worlds, it automatically helps you stand out because you're going uh, not against the grain like you're trying to push up against the machine or anything like that, but you're you're proactively offering something outside of what you're being told is your role. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The second way to successfully lead when you're not the leader is to embrace that the team needs to succeed for you to succeed. Now, we all play our own role within a team, right? We have results we are accountable for, and a lot of times that dictates what our success looks like come evaluation time. So when challenges arise or something starts interfering with our ability to deliver our results, we can become really hostile. (laughs) We start pointing fingers, we assign blame, we vent to the name leader, and all of this is because we don't want to look bad. We just want to accomplish and deliver what we want to deliver, and we just don't want to look bad. But unfortunately, this self-preservation mode rarely motivates others in helping you achieve your results. So as you're pointing the finger at somebody else, that, that person being like getting really defensive, mm-hmm. they're getting feeling really bad, and they don't want to motiv- be motivated to actually help you achieve what your goal is. And what actually ends up happening, and it creates an extremely dysfunctional team. They hire the whole entire team and the whole entire team's culture starts to break down. And the whole mission and the goal of the team starts to break down. And when the team suffers, it's impossible for anyone to succeed. Like it just isn't you just can't do it, all right? Now, a leader takes a different approach when challenges arise. A leader understands that the success of the team is imperative for she or he to be successful too. So instead of pointing fingers, when challenges arise, that leader would say, what can I do to help the team succeed? What does that look like? And this collaboration really can only be accomplished if that person actually takes accountability for the entire result. You can't uh, you can't achieve that level of collaboration or get those quality results if you're only focused on delivering what you are responsible for delivering. 
Now, a lot of people would say, that's the person who's supposed to be the leader's job, right? And yes, ultimately, that is their responsibility, but that leader cannot force people to work together. We've Mm -hmm. all been in those situations Mm -hmm. when they're like, you and you, you guys need to talk. You guys need to make, make this work. They can only force that interaction, but they can't force collaboration. They can't force the ability to see things through the lens of the other person and build that empathy that's needed in order to deliver the overarching results. So, Scott, what do you have to say about this one? Yeah, boy, I if, if the viewers could see me, I'm going to uh, sprain my neck from nodding so vigorously. And, <laughs> you know, what, one, of the, one of the things that I'm really drawn to about what you just said, Anne, is you know the, the concept of you got to understand as a leader that if you want to succeed, it's got to be about the team and that you should be asking yourself, you know, what can you do to help the team succeed? In fact, you know, a pretty interesting thing came out when we were doing the research for uh, the book I'm here talking about and sharing with you, Leading from the Middle. The backbone of the book is research we we did with over 3,000 middle managers, people who have Mm -hmm. to influence up, down, and across. And Mm -hmm. by default, they need their team to succeed or they're not going to succeed, like by mathematical definition. And what we found as we were interviewing over 3,000 experts, you know, people that were perceived widely as excellent leaders from the middle, you know, we were looking for themes that we could share within the book of, you know, success themes and how do you do it well. And one thing we kept seeing over and over again was a simple sentence that in one way, shape or form, the most successful middle managers kept asking themselves before they would take an action that would impact the team. And it was this one sentence in some form. We kept hearing it over and over again. Am I assisting success or avoiding failure? Mm-hmm. And when you stop and you ask yourself that, so much of what we do as a leader boils down to one of those two things. And, and the answer to the question has, it takes you in very different places and different actions. If you ask yourself, am I assisting success? What you're about to do then is engage in a lot of the behaviors you were, you were describing. You're going to start sticking your neck out. You're going to take smart risks. You're going to put your people first. You're going to get them the resources they need. You're going to invest in coaching them. If you're avoiding failure, you're micromanaging. Mm-hmm. You are procrastinating. Uh, remember this from our P&G days, uh, April, or Anne, rather? You, you, know, you, you conduct parallel paths. You, oh, you, yeah. you cover your, your A <laughs> by having path A and path B, and we'll carry those paths as long as we can so I don't have to make a decision. Then when we get to the end, I'll finally make a decision. That's an avoiding failure, or not. (laughs) (laughs) Quite often or not, that's an avoiding failure mindset. So I I find simply asking that question, am I assisting success or avoiding failure, helps you keep the orientation that it's not about you. You're there to assist team success, which ultimately will come back to success for you. I think it's so true and it really is so important. And I think, Anne, when you said, you know, isn't that the named leader's job? That's one of my favorite parts about this one because I think this is a really good way to shift your mentality. Again, I feel like I'm going to be the one about early on in your career if you can recognize these Mm -hmm. types of things. But if you can start to understand faster that it's not just about you, and I think to all the points you just made, Scott. I feel like once you can see beyond just this is my role and this is my personal path to success, the quicker you can get to leadership, no matter what your level is within the team, because you can only accomplish so many things on your own. 
And I think it's just so limiting. And I know all the reasons, right? And you just outlined some. It's the big CYA. It's, you know, (laughs) well, I'm going to deliver what I'm supposed to deliver. So therefore, I'm not going to get myself in trouble rather than, you know what? There's a whole lot better way to be doing this. And we could be more fill in the blank productive. We could do it faster. We could be more efficient. And the person that can shift to that and say, if I could get everybody working and moving in that direction, I'll look better, do better in the long run, all of those things, but I will create a better product for my organization. Those are the ones that I think no matter what level manager they are or or are oriented to successfully lead teams. Well said. Yeah, I think that is a a really good point. And and frankly, it is the pivot point of being able actually to grow up from that middle yes, manager like position yeah. to yeah. the name leader mm-hmm. is when yes. you can actually see the world from that context. And we hear it all the time when people are struggling to try to get to that next level where they want to be the named leader and they're getting feedback like, well, you know, you do a really good job with what you deliver. You you deliver like <laughs> everything that you're supposed to be d- to deliver. But, you know, you when you get into a team, you know, atmosphere, you're too direct. Or when you get into a team atmosphere, like you, you're the no person or something to that effect. And that's like a really big trigger for your, your manager is telling you, your feedback that your manager is telling you or whoever's telling you that, that you are not acting like a leader. Yeah. And so that is something that we see a lot. Um, and it's definitely something that can be modified and changed in the behaviors and actions. Uh, when you were in uh, in the P&G world, Scott, that was a big one that you saw, too, from, you know, when you were trying to get your middle managers and your middle leaders up to that leadership level, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we often used to say that you could tell somebody was ready for promotion when they started thinking and acting like a level above them. Yeah. And, you know, once they start, one of the biggest indicators of that is when they start engaging in all the behaviors that we've been talking about here. So, yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. And I'm I'm just sitting here wondering, too, why I didn't get asked to be interviewed for your book. (laughs) <laughs> as an exceptional leader oh, for the middle. But um, yeah. <laughs> we'll let that one go for now. Okay, fine. Yeah, fair enough. You wanted to be number 3001. Is that what you Okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, I would have been the model. I understand that that would have been a little difficult to go from there, but okay. <laughs> Under, un, understood, understood. Yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, the next book, How to Lead from Way yeah. Below the Middle. Okay, I got you. Yeah, right, right, right. How to, the next book, how, how to Get into a Partnership with Someone and Crush Everything You Touch by Anne and April. That's really Oh, I love that one. Oh, that's a great yeah. book. Okay, okay good. Yeah. All right, wait, way to cover. Okay. All right, the third way to successfully lead when you're not the leader is to be a teacher. And this is a very, very big one because it's not in the condescending way of like, let me teach you how we do that, you know, <laughs> we, which we all got. <laughs> we all just cringe when we hear that. But it's in a way that explains context so people can understand the vision, the impact, what success looks like, ways we have failed before, oranges stories if you happen to be a founder. Teach them your skill, your knowledge and experiences. This all helps to explain the why. And that helps people really understand where you are coming from. And when they can understand where you're coming from, they can build empathy with where you're at. And when you can build empathy, you build understanding. So it's really, really critical to teach. 
Now, being busy is not an excuse. We say that all the time. I'm too busy to spend the time to teach this person or explain this to them. It's just easier if I do it myself Mm -hmm. or, you know, I'm just going to give them like the to do's. And when you give them just people the to do's and you make it a tactical ask, it does not build that relationship that then builds empathy. You have now a transactional a relationship and the transactional relationships hardly ever result into something that's fortuitously something that's going to generate uh, impact for both of you. So it's really, really important to think about that in the context of taking the time to actually teach. And this actually includes managing up. And Scott, I know you're going to have a lot to talk about this because, you know, as we are sitting here or in the you know middle position or, you know, it is a leader that's not the name leader. Sometimes we think that our perspective is irrelevant. But as we said in the very, very beginning, like your perspective is unique to you. Nobody else has that perspective. So for you to not share what that perspective is or try to educate or try to um, be able to give that context, even to your upper level management you're really doing a disservice to yourself and the entire team. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it kind of goes back to something you said, Ann. And, Ann and April, tell me how many times you guys heard this, right? I used to hear from young coaches all the time, you know, even when I could get them to a point of, you know, what you just said, you have value to share. You have something to teach. Mm-hmm. I'd still hear, okay, but I don't have time. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I always used to tell them, you don't have time not to teach and not to coach because of the benefits that it brings. And, and, you know, an easy safety valve is if you literally that, you know, if you literally that week don't have time to pull someone aside and to teach and to share, to coach and give, you know, share knowledge at a minimum, you can do, you know, what I call looking for well-known, proven, teachable moments. And I talk about this a lot in leading from the middle, but let me give you a couple of examples. Once you become aware of these moments, your brain could kick in and say, all right, at least in this moment, I need to take the time to teach and to coach others. For example, uh, when when a, an employee's A game is not present in an mm-hmm. A situation, mm-hmm. and this happens in you know corporate world, small companies, big companies, you got a big presentation. I wish I could tell you that your reputation isn't built or destroyed in big reputations, but unfortunately, it can be. And someone shows up and they're not ready for that big moment. A little switch should go off in your head. That's a teachable moment. Yes. I'm going to pull the person aside, tell mm-hmm. them when it. Here's just two other. Like, here's a teachable moment. When somebody falls short on a risk taken, mm-hmm. you can pull them aside, not to beat them up and abuse them because they didn't, you know, you got to celebrate failure. But whatever it is you want to say about the risk that, they, that they've taken and what they can learn from it, that's a key teachable moment. And I'll just share one more, and I could do this all day. Another teachable <laughs> moment is when you have the chance to share the view from the window seat. And this is when you take time to realize that people underneath you are probably wondering what the view is like in your chair. Yeah. And if you go to a big meeting, you go to a conference, and just coming back and downloading with employees, that's a teachable moment. Wow, let me tell you about, I was just meeting with a CEO. It was really cool what she said. Let me tell you what she said and why we're going to do what we're going to do. And you let people get the view from the window seat. Those are just three teachable moments. And I bet if you took some quiet time, you could come up with about 10 others on your own. And even if you have those built in, it gives you a mechanism to make teaching a part of your everyday leadership plan. I think it's so true and it's really smart. And I think you bring up a good point, which is, 
being a teacher doesn't mean that you have to plan in detail like you would if you were an actual teacher. <laughs> right. Right. It's that you recognize and you're able to recognize those exact moments that you just referenced, Scott, be on the lookout for them and then make them regular practice within the team. And then you don't necessarily have to be the one doing the teaching all the time. It's just right. a practice of the team, which is another area of influence and another skill that you can build more broadly than just you. And I think on the other side of that, both of you mentioned, you know, in different ways, the idea that if you let people in and you let them have access to you and understand that your perspective is something they can tap into that they can learn from. So they're asking for it or they're requesting your time. Or like you said, Scott, you come back from one of these big meetings or presentations or conferences or whatever that they don't have the opportunity to go to yet, but they get the view into that, the insight into what happens as a result of those types of meetings and then how it trickles down into the organization and into their job. That can be super powerful for them because they get the bigger picture, and they also understand, okay, if I do this now, this might be what I aspire to. What can I do in the middle to get there? Mm-hmm. That's right, April. And what, what you just described, what does that take? It takes intent yep. and a little investment in time. Exactly. And look at the benefits you get from it. Yep. Yeah, and I also think it can be very strategic. So I'll, I'll yeah. give you the example of um, since I was in communications, communications was not a very understood function. And if, if communications, public relations, call it what you want. And so what I used to do is every time we had a new ABM, I used to take them out to lunch and I would explain everything we did, all the ways <laughs> that we can make them really look good, all the ways we could integrate with all the, you know, the, the actual traditional advertising and marketing. And he'd be like, oh, my gosh, you're so right, because they got it. Like they understood communication because they weren't coming from the world of P&G, which was already kind of like I was resigned to the fact that traditional advertising was the way that, you know, we were going to go. Um, and so They're they very impressionable. Yeah. Well, they became then they became advocates yeah, for communications. And, and not that it was supposed to be done in the intent that I'm trying to push my agenda, but because I believe that was what was going to be best for the whole entire project in general. So they helped kind of like grease the skids mm-hmm. and they helped to like be able to advocate for um, what the what the work that we were doing. And then also in those moments, I would reciprocate by helping them when they were in meetings and something like were to happen. Um, I, you know, take them aside, like, you know, what just happened there, right? You know, and they mm-hmm. explain <laughs> the dynamics of the room. And so uh, actually I had more ABMs as mentees than I did actually communications people because they respected my view and respected the fact that I was willing to take the time to teach them. So it's amazing how that can also build a very strategic mm. network that can work um, to, to many benefits. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a good segue into the I was going to say, you point. just set yourself up. Are you looking at the script here? Or? I did write the script, but <laughs> no, okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, the fourth way to successfully lead when you're not the leader is to build allies. And I did give just a, um, a really concrete example of that. But let me generalize this point so everybody can understand the intent. It, allies are essential, really, in enabling leadership. And it's really essential at any level, but it's very, very critical as you're building reputation, credibility, and advocacy. And you can strategically choose them, like I just mentioned, to based on the role you need them to play. 
And for an, I'll give you a couple other different examples based on the one that I already gave. But if you're newer to the organization, like if you were that ABM that I was talking about, you may pick an ally who can help you understand the dynamics and politics of the team, which they chose me. And then in that way, I could help them navigate the conversations and make sure they didn't unintentionally tread into forbidden waters, make sure they didn't kind of speak out of turn, or just give them some perspective based on what happened in the room to make them better and more proficient in the job that they were doing. Or help them be more confident in speaking out. Or help them be more confident mm. in, in, yes, because a lot of times the ABM had to speak first and that was never an easy place to be. Hate that practice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we always, we considered a rite of passage. Everybody oh, had to go through it. I would it. cringe every time as the agency person in the room. Like, why do you people do this? Look at that guy. He's going to melt into a puddle of sweat. You could just tell. Like, they're always like, this could go either way. This could go either way. It's like Russian roulette. But um, and you could just tell when they were right. Like, they'd bear manager would say, oh, yeah. They'd be like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and Scott, you know you did that to people. You know you did oh, it. for fun. And if you, April, you know. On the agency side, no one was listening until the most senior person it's spoke. Okay, so, anyway. yeah, yeah, okay. I, well, exactly. That's the whole thing. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> well, on the other side, too, you know, it's if you're presenting something that you know might meet some resistance, and that was sometimes the, what I had to do, I would go and find out uh, allies that were going to endorse my point of view and advocate for me in the meeting. So this was really important for me not to come in necessarily as a lone ranger trying to push a very – we say, you know, uh, maybe outside the box kind of um, approach to things that they weren't necessarily ready for. Or maybe you are working on adjusting behaviors and actions as part of your personal brand. And this is where a trusted ally could be very helpful and holding you accountable to the way you're showing up. Because a lot of us, actually all of us have blind spots and by blind spots by nature means that we're not seeing these things. So it's really helpful to have an ally who's going to gently tell you, hey, um, you know how you just acted that or behaved in that? Ah, probably not a good thing. This other person reacted like this. And so it gives you feedback that you may not have gotten otherwise. And this is never meant to be manipulative. So please don't take that away from what I'm trying to tell you, because it's essential to either paying it back or you're paying it forward, but you got to embrace the fact you need other people to achieve your goals and dreams. And this is what this is all about. Yeah, you know, and 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 sometimes allies, they're they're often people. It's okay, you know, to your point. It's not about being manipulative, but it's okay. But allies are often people that we want to influence, right? Mm-hmm. But there's no True. there's no shame in that. And I wanted to equip your audience with a simple tool to help build allies here, especially ones that you want to influence here. And especially often our allies are people that we have no formal authority over, right? You know, you, you yep. can't, I think it's hard to say someone who reports to you is your ally because they have to do what you say. <laughs> but people that don't report to you, those are probably more realistically allies. And so if you want to be able to influence people over whom you have no formal influence, I want to share with your listeners the golden rule of influence. It's a very powerful tool. Uh, and I, I think they're going to find it pretty useful. So uh, to, to introduce it, I'm going to run a simple test with both of you. Here's what I want you to do. Oh, boy. Uh-oh, now we're being now, put on the spot. Now, now you're being put on the spot, but this is an easy one. We could always edit now, it out. This is, what I, <laughs> this is what I want you to do. I know you're in your fancy recording booth, but I, I want you, and no one can see you, but I really want you to do this. I want you to, when I say go, I want you to close your eyes, okay? And uh, so here we go. Ready? Go. Close your eyes, both of you. Now, I want you to picture somebody in your work life, in your past, okay, that had tremendous influence over you, but they're not someone that you reported to formally, or, or that, or I should say the other way around, that, that reported to you formally, 
but they just had tremendous influence over you in your life. So let me know when you have that person visualized and then you can, uh, well, no, don't keep your eyes closed. Let me know when you have that person. Well, I already broke the rule. I opened my eyes because I had the person, but they're closed again. I have not. Okay. Eye. Okay. All right. You've, and you've got the person too, right? Yep. Okay. So let me ask you this. With your eyes still closed and you're picturing moments with this person, were they influential over you because they did one of any of these four things? Did they care, listen, give, or teach? Mm -hmm. All of them. And? Yeah. And that's what we find. That's yeah. the golden rule of influence. We found in our research that the people that are most influential, that build the most allies, are the ones that are able to influence those that don't even report to them. And, and how do they do that? Well, they care, they listen, they give, they teach. It's not rocket science here, but it's really effective and it's really true if you stop and think about it. Well, and I love the term ally in general because I think to the point you just made, it gets at exactly what you're talking about. You're not talking in terms of friends. That's a mm -hmm. different definition. You're not talking right. in terms of direct reports. You're not talking in terms of a boss. It's much more of these people selecting you as much as you select them because they feel that connection point with you. And it's based on these four things, I think, that you outline around caring and listening, giving and teaching to these people because they're feeling, well, hopefully they are, they're feeling privileged to be able to spend time with you because they have that respect for you. And it creates a little bit of a wow factor of, I can't believe this person would take the time to do these four mm -hmm. things for me. And so it builds that authentic ally in them, as opposed to something like you said, Scott, that's forced because of the business relationship. Yeah. And sadly, April, what you said is true, that when you encounter an ally who, you know, someone who doesn't report to you that cares, listens, gives and teaches, unfortunately, it sticks out because it's not done often right. enough. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think this is where I always cringed when, you know, back into the P&G world where people would arbitrarily try to set up coaches or mentors. You know, it's, you know I remember, oh, you need a mentor. You know, we have these three people pick. I'm like, I don't have any idea. I mean, like, why would they care about me? I mean, what's the point of that? And it felt like it's more of a check the box instead of somebody that was truly invested and you and your success, which is kind of what you know, puts a bow around all of these things. It's like somebody's invested in you, cares, gives, listens, and teaches, right? So I think that is like a really amazing way to sum this this point up and give a little bit more definition to ally and, and how the ally could really be like yeah, a really powerful influencer on your behalf. So that's fantastic. So just to summarize how to successfully lead when you're not the leader. First, become a subject matter expert. This can be on multiple different levels, but what must be true is it must be a value to the organization. Second, embrace that the team needs to succeed for you to succeed. Take accountability for the team's results, not just your own. Third is be a teacher. Take the time to explain context, vision, impact. Teach them your skill, knowledge, and experiences. Explain the why. Build allies. Allies are essential in enabling leadership at any level, but are particularly critical as you're building reputation, credibility, and advocacy. You have asked for it, and now it's here. The Brand Strategy Workbook. Three insider secrets to build a powerful B2B brand to transform you from a commodity into a market leader. 
This strategy has been tried and tested on 20 plus industries over a combined 40 plus years of experience. Do you want to stand out in your industry and get more sales? Show you're different to attract and retain top talent? Build a brand that drives real business results? Then go to forthright-people.com forward slash brand strategy and get started now. All right, we're going to move into our next segment, which is in the trenches, where we give real world examples specific to industries and situations, but with broad application for anyone to digest and put into action. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot of really good examples based on some of our early discussions. All right. So our first in the trenches question, I am having a hard time in team meetings getting anyone to listen to me, let alone getting what I need. What am I doing wrong? I love this one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we've all been there. And um, <laughs> and, and this is where somebody kind of told to me very early on in my career about not worrying about looking good so much and just worrying about being good. Mm-hmm. And that and, and what that translated to for me is that, we, you know, we get so wrapped up in making sure when we get into these situations that we look smart, that we say something smart, that we behave you know smart. So we make that impression, but we forget to spend the time understanding the key dynamics in the room so we can actually best understand how to move ourselves towards our objectives. And this is really, really important because meetings are actually a really good place for this. But only if you observe first and you speak second, which is more about being good versus looking good. And because this is where you're going to actually find instead of what you need, you know, try to get what you need, you figure out how you're going to get it. And that's the only really big place you're going to get that because that's where the dynamics really come to the forefront. So you, when you're in these meetings, you need to take note of who are the decision makers, who are the stakeholders and influencers, and you need to note that they're not necessarily the name leader. It, the name leader may not be any of these. They may just be a facilitator for, for all intents and purposes. And you really want to look for how decisions are getting made. Is there a prominent voice that is influencing the conversation? Who has the ear of the decision maker? Who do they trust? And then probably one of the most big indicators is who is getting the money? <laughs> Follow the money. The Follow the money. Follow the money. <laughs> and, then, well, and then the other part of this is really just understanding then what is the motivation of the stakeholders? And the stakeholders are the people who are going to benefit the most from what is going on, okay? And if your objectives need to align with what is essential to them in their plan. If you're trying to operate outside of what is actually important to the stakeholders, it's going to be very, very hard for you to get what you need. Now, understanding these dynamics is really the key of getting yourself into the conversations. And remember that a lot of these dynamics are happening outside the meeting. The meeting is just the stage for this. So it's you can you can get a really good picture of what's happening in the meeting, but you're going to have to be doing your homework and doing your research outside as well. You know, if I could add to this, um, and I, I want to I start by saying this. Here's the truth. Two things will be the death of us all. Number one. <laughs> Meetings. Death. <laughs> can we agree to that? Number one is death. Yeah, death. number one's death. Okay. Yeah. And then number two is meetings. Yes, April, yeah. you're exactly right. Sorry, I didn't mean to preempt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You blew the punchline. No, uh, but yeah, we, I think we can all agree with that. So, but why? why? Why do we all agree with that? You know, I, I wrote that in an article once. I got like 10 zillion views. I think it's because so many people view the two things as interchangeable, death and meetings. And, you know, <laughs> what? why is that? Now, all kidding aside, and, you know, the research shows us because, 
depending on the piece of research you tap into, I should say, anywhere between 60 to 80% of all meetings are seen as completely a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and it happens because, you know, especially leaders, you know, the second part of the your um, uh, listener's question, they don't get what they need from the meetings. So let me share one really super power tip, especially for leaders of an organization, to help them get what they need from the meeting. You guys kind of focused on you know, how to get heard mm-hmm. and to be in the meeting. Great. I want to focus on the getting what you need from the meeting. And I found this to be incredibly powerful. End every meeting with a magic five-word sentence. Every meeting. Ask this. Who'll do what by when? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's what that forces. And if you get into a rhythm of always asking that, everybody knows it's coming. So when you ask who's going to do what, guess what? Everybody pays more attention during the meeting because they know they might get assigned with a task and they better know what it is they're supposed to do to be able to carry it out. When you say, you know, you're going to say who will do what, you know, you have to drive to conclusions of the meeting. How many times have you been in a meeting? And at the end of the meeting, you realize we haven't even finished discussion and arguing enough to decide what it is we're going to do next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you ask that question and you know what's coming, you're going to try to preempt it by getting to a more conclusive outcome. Then, of course, the by when part of that question, who will do what by when, that just is good old fashioned accountability, Mm -hmm. right? If you put a date and a gate to it and you say it in front of other people, you're going to be far more likely to get accountability and you get what you need out of meetings. Boom. Five words. That was a bonus. Free of charge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I will say two things to this. One is I can't remember a more freeing moment in my entire career than when I did leave the agency world and stopped having 40 to 45 hours worth of meetings a week. I almost didn't know what to do with my (laughs) Mm -hmm. time. I was so giddy. Um, But on the other side of this, the point of this one is I think if you can become the person to effectively manage meetings, you can put yourself in a really good position. Because as you were talking, Scott, I was picturing different people at different points in my career who were just the masters of meetings. And they would do exactly what you said, which is assign rules, make sure people were accountable, all of those things. But they ran the meeting with intention and purpose. So people were awake. They were willing willing to participate. They came prepared and they left knowing what their marching orders were. And the meeting was used for its purpose versus I feel like we're getting a little bit on a tangent and soapbox about meetings in general, but so many of them are not planned effectively. They're just thrown on the calendar. It's like, well, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm going to schedule a meeting. And therefore, we end up in these types of situations. Right on. Yeah. My favorite role is when we actually got into a real discussion the person who's running to me and be like, why don't you guys take that offline? I'm like, no, <laughs> I want to get this done now. I don't want to take it offline. Can we parking lot that? Can we parking yeah. lot that? Yeah, and you're left saying like, I think I want to go watch parking lots as an attendant instead of do this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we're finally getting somewhere and we're going to take it offline. <laughs> right. Oh, man. All right. Our next end of trenches question You mentioned being a subject matter expert, but isn't it better to be broad rather than deep as a leader? And it actually is true that once you reach a certain level, you are becoming more of a generalist. But every successful leader has made their way based on being a subject matter expert. 
That's because you actually need to create that value that we talked about, which creates brand love for yourself, and that can only be done if you can differentiate from others. Now, as we mentioned, there's many different levels of subject matter expertise, and we talked about some of the more softer ones versus more than some of the ones that are more tangible. But just as an example, like Bill Gates, he started as a tech whiz. I mean, eventually he became you know the great magnet he is now, but he started as a tech whiz. Sarah Blakely of Spanx credits her sales grit to her success. And Tony Robbins, he understands how to get people unstuck. That's really like the foundation of what he has built his whole business around, right? So I know, Scott, you have an excellent way of probing for this because you used it on me and I use it on others now. (laughs) She uses it all the time. Yeah, and I don't give you credit at all for (laughs) it. I don't care. I don't care. My gift to you. (laughs) I do. I actually do. I actually do say, like, uh, this was the first question that my my business coach asked me when I was trying to figure this out. So, um, we, we, we talk we a little bit about your that. thunder this yeah. time. We'll let you do it. No, that's okay. And the first question is, can we agree to terms of payment? Because, you know, I want to be, <laughs> no, that's not the, that's, that's not the, that's not the first question I ask at all. No, no. Uh, I, you know, Hey, look, I like to ask, you know, when people are like, yeah, but okay, what is my subject matter expertise? You just think about this. If you lost your job tomorrow, what could you sell? Mm-hmm. If all of a sudden, wow, I didn't have my job and I have to like live, I have to pay my mortgage, I have to be able to eat, what could you sell? I promise you there's something that you can be able to sell. And sometimes, you know, Anna and April, people get hung up in, okay, but, you know, what I could sell, it has to be earth shattering and it's the first time <laughs> mm-hmm. it's ever been heard on the planet. And, you know, I, and I draw a lesson from an editor um, at um, my first publishing house who taught me a really important lesson, who he told me that, you know, look, if you want to get a book published, too many people think that they have to, you know, write the next, you know, like the, a Malcolm Gladwell type book with something so mind bending mm-hmm. that nobody has thought of it before. And, you know, I entered the, 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 you know, the world of authorship thinking I had to create first to the world insights and things that nobody had ever heard before. And, you know, when they asked me to write the book proposal, you know, name other books like yours. Of course, I wrote that, you know, none. This is going to be unique. And my editor said, that's a mistake, dude. What we're looking for is for you to say something like, no, there's actually like 15 books on the category uh, that I want to write about because it shows you there's a market for it. Mm -hmm. What we're looking for is your unique spin and your unique take on an existing school of expertise. And I apply that to, you know, to other people as well to get them to understand that, you know, you do have something that you can sell. You do have expertise. It doesn't have to be earth shattering, profound. No one's ever heard it before. It doesn't have to be unique to the world. It just has to be unique to you, to your take and your spin on it. I promise you it's there. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and I love this question, and obviously Anne told me one of the first times we ever met, too, so another testament to you, Scott, about if I Mm -hmm. lost my job, what could I sell tomorrow? But I feel like it's a good one because it puts you in a frame of reference to really focus on and make a decision quickly about what that thing would be. It gives almost like an urgency of, all right, if I had to pick one thing and, and bet my literally my well-being on it, what would that thing be? And I think it's a good way to position this and also to speak more directly to the importance of being a subject matter expert through your unique personality. Because like you just said, there aren't that many mind-shattering brand new ideas out there anymore. And so 
I feel like to strive to invent something that's never been invented is a whole lot bigger of a challenge than to say, you know what, I'm really passionate about this. And I've been researching, learning about this, doing this, putting it into practice, trying these things all these all these years. And now I feel like I have a unique perspective that I can give back to others the same way I got a unique perspective from a variety of people when I started to build my own point of view. There you go. And you're all the better for it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is a really, really, really important point because we do hear that a lot. We hear like, well, I don't. it's not anything different than what everybody yeah. else isn't saying. But it's like, yeah, well, that might be true, but your take on it could be a, a different take that gets somebody else to hear it differently, right? So my experience, you know, with P&G and April's experience with the agency, though we could all be both be talking brand strategy Depending on who we're talking to and based on the experiences we're using and based on the um, the examples we have and the brands we've worked on, people hear that differently, yes. right? So it, there's a gazillion people who talk brand strategy. And if only one person talked brand strategy, you wouldn't have that diversity of thought that allows people to hear it differently, to apply it differently, to see how examples or uh, experiences and failures and successes, how all those translate into something that they can then apply to their own business. And it's not and one person can't be that for everybody. All right. So our third in the trenches question, what are the biggest mistakes you see people make when they're trying to lead when they aren't the leader or leading from the middle? We'll see. We'll throw that in there, too. So I, I'll, I'll start on that. And um, I, I invite every uh, April and, and Scott, I invite you guys to uh, to to gang up on this one, too, because I think we all have a ton of examples. <laughs> Um, so the first one here is they don't take the time to enroll others. I mean, we talked about being a teacher. Um, we can, we talked about being able to collaborate and and, and really seeing the, uh, the the full scope of what the the, the team needs to deliver and, and really building allies in order to enable that. That's a big mistake when you don't enroll others. Um, you forget to check if people are following. Um, we talked about this before. That was a mistake I made very young where I was like a team of one. And it charging was, along. I was charging along and all of a sudden I turned around. I'm like, how come nobody's following me? How come I'm here on my own and nobody's helping me and nobody wants to? I'm like, so very big indicator that um, you're not a leader if nobody's following. If you undermine others to get the ear of the name leader, we see this happen all the time. Again, it's like it's the uh, trying to make people look bad so you don't look bad mm-hmm. um, or trying to accommodate that in a CYA kind of way. Um, it never ends well. Um, it, you, you get a reputation for, for being that kind of a person, and it's just, it just never ends well. Uh, if you take advantage of other team members in effort and in credit, don't take people's work as your own. Um, Again, not a really great way of being able to build community and in that collaboration that you need in order to be able to deliver what you need to deliver. When you take things too personally, this is on the other side of of the coin a bit where we think every piece of feedback, we think every um, thing that doesn't go right is some dramatic pointing of the finger at us saying that we are bad people as individuals. Remember, it's about the work. Unless somebody's actually pointing the finger at you and saying you're a bad individual, then, you know, that's clear. But um, <laughs> then you need to figure out why. Uh, the fake it till you make it. 
April's favorite. Oh, I hate you, this one. Yeah, you can speak to this one. I know this one's one of your favorites. Well, I mean, I just think it's advice that's so often given, and it's like the worst advice out there. Yeah. Because if you tell someone to fake it till you make it, two things happen. One, they never actually learn how to do it. <laughs> and two, they just start impersonating other people or projecting from what they've seen before, and it doesn't come across authentically, and it just falls flat. And so I feel like people give that advice as kind of like an offhanded, like, oh, just fake it till you make it. It'll work out. And I'm like, why? It never does. And then that person goes away feeling like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I guess I did something wrong because they made it seem easy. And it's not easy. It's also just a terrible practice. Right. The only the only people that are good at being someone else are actors, right? right exactly. <laughs> and even not then either, you know. <laughs> right. Some of them are pretty bad actors. <laughs> Scott, what what other ones do you have here that you've seen? Yeah, I just I, I want to, I'll just add one. I'll build on what April was talking about authenticity. We see this. I saw this in in my experience, my three decades experience. We saw this over and over and over in research that some of the middle managers that struggled the most were the ones that chased approval instead of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And they assume because they're in the middle, and yes, they have to influence up, down, and across. That requires everyone approving of what they do. And so much of our self-esteem, we wait so much time, so much time and energy pursuing some version of something other than who we really are in a, in a need to get this approval that th- it does not have the impact we think it does. When instead, if you just chase authenticity, being who you are, you will, people will take notice. You know, good work can't hide. Good workers, mm-hmm. most even more so, can't hide. So, you know, just sticking to chasing authenticity versus approval is what I would add. Yeah, there's just, it's, there is no easy way to do, well, really anything, I feel like. Like you phone anything and it doesn't go well. But I definitely think when we're talking about becoming a leader and leading with intention, and like you just said, authenticity, Scott. You have to take the time to develop your style and it has to come from who you are as a person. And then, like you said, everything you've learned, everything you've experienced, all of those different things. But from the very beginning, if if it isn't something you inherently believe or feel, then your style is always going to feel off to other people because, like you said, it then isn't authentic. It's like people sniff out authenticity Mm -hmm. quicker than anything else. And so the minute you're acting or badly acting or, you know, pretending to be on stage or pontificating in front of people, all of those different behaviors that have driven me crazy over the years, you see people either like slowly backing away from the table or, you know, (laughs) looking away or looking at their cell phone, you know, disengaging because they can feel that that is not actually who you are. That's right. And there's no trust there, which is the foundation of being able to lead is you have to build respect and you have to build trust. And if you're perceived as an inauthentic person, you're never going to be able to generate that. And that's why, you know, we say it's really important to really, really cultivate your personal brand, Mm -hmm. really be very clear about what those personal brand characteristics are, and then understand that you can change your behaviors and actions. You can't change your personal brand characteristics, but you can alter your behaviors and actions that are still in line with your characteristics based on feedback you're getting. What we see, right, the breakdown really happening is when people get some level of feedback 
And they feel like then all of a sudden who they are is somehow bad or incomplete or not good enough. And so therefore they try to act like somebody else or they try to behave in some place in some other way that's incongruent with their personal brand characteristics. And then that results in a level of inauthenticity that everybody can like sniff out in a second. It's just like, oh, yeah, yesterday that person was direct. And today this person is like being all kinds of nice. And like it it just doesn't work. People sniff it out in a second. Is, is anything more transparent than when someone's not being transparent? I, yeah. I, I don't, we're pretty smart human. Uh, we're a pretty smart uh, race, if you want to call it. Or, you know, we, we, we're, we've stuck around and we beat out the animals for a reason. We p- can pick up on these things. Yeah, I think that's right on, especially if you want to sniff it out. Now, if you want to just pretend, <laughs> you know, that, you know, what you see at face value is what it really is. And uh, yeah. Well, good luck to you. That's then. a different podcast for a different <laughs> yeah, day. Good luck to you. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> All right. Our third and final segment is usually a real world example of a brand who's doing this well or not well. And we have an amazing brand who's doing this well, and that's you, Scott. So we'd love to just to turn this over to you just to give any other thoughts that you have or any kind of things you want to make sure that everybody takes away. And obviously, tell us more about where people can find your book, where they can find you, and more about what Profound Performance does. Yeah, cool. I appreciate you having me here today. I love your your show. I love what you you're doing, and and you know, I just want folks to remember that, you know, if you lead from the middle, you're you're not stuck in the middle. You have a chance to lead in every direction. And a middle manager is it's anybody who has a boss and is a boss, right? Who has to lead up, down, and across their organization to be successful at that. And you know, if people want to learn more about, you know, they can check out. My book, Leading from the Middle, a playbook for managers to influence up, down, and across the organization. I I humbly offer that. I'm proud to say I I think it's hit number one in multiple categories because it fulfills an unmet need, right? Mm -hmm. How many books have you, you two, heard about and read about that are about the C-suite, you know, and top down? or? You know, here's how to get off to a fast start in your first 90 days on the job. Nobody writes about the, you know, the people in the middle because it's not as sexy. Mm-hmm. But it, it couldn't be more important to an organization's success. And the book really dives into that. And if people want to learn more about that, you know, you can find me at scottmouts.com, um, M-A-U-T-Z, scottmouts.com. And I put together something for your listeners today, a, a special little gift, Ooh, if you will. Nice. If, uh, if they go to scottmouts.com uh, forward slash free tools... They'll get a, a free 30-page companion workbook and um, a free access to my complete leadership toolkit. It's the, the workbook that goes along with the book leading from the middle. That's at scottmouts.com forward slash free tools. No space in between free and tools, and they'll, they'll download that. So thank you so much for uh, allowing me to be on your wonderful show, ladies. I've really enjoyed it. We knew you were. We were your favorites. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> always. Um, I'll be uh, looking for that um, request for interview for the next book. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair. Fair enough. It, it's our. I've already booked it, so we should be good. Uh, it's all good. Good. Good deal. So, just to summarize, how to successfully lead when you're not the leader. Become a subject matter expert. This can be on multiple different levels, but what must be true is it must be a value to the organization. Embrace that the team needs to succeed for for you to succeed. Take accountability for the team's results, not just your own. Third is be the teacher. Take the time to explain context, vision, impact. Teach them your skill, knowledge, and experiences, and then explain the why. Finally, build allies. Allies are essential in enabling leadership at any level, but are particularly critical as you're building reputation, credibility, and advocacy. And with that, we'll say, go exercise your marketing smarts. 
Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. We can help you become a savvier marketer through coaching or training you and your team or doing the work on your behalf. Please also help us grow the podcast by rating and reviewing on your player of choice and sharing with at least one person. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.